Welcome once again to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode one for November 2023, so it's hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello and welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode of the podcast, we'll have, as always, a selection of your letters to the editor. Simon Hoare, MP, reflects on the current seemingly intractable conflict in the Middle East and offers his own route map to an enduring solution. Sarah Dyke of the Lib Dems advocates for fairness for same-sex couples when it comes to IVF treatment. Ken Huggins of the North Dorset Green Party bemoans the government's can-kicking in respect of measures to achieve net zero by 2050. And Labour's Pat Osborne says profits for banks, but suffering for ordinary people. You can hear the first part of my interview with Chris Loder, during which he answers questions submitted by readers of the BV magazine. Nutritionist and regular BV columnist Karen Geary talks healthy eating on a tight budget and how to stay well in the winter months. But first, here's Laura. I'm going to avoid the state of the world commentary this month because I'm bored with trying to find a positive spin on a basket full of nightmares. The two alternatives I have half-drafted are rapidly getting equally shouty, and if there's one thing literally nobody needs right now, is one more person shouting about wrong things from their corner. So instead I thought I'd talk about some happy things. Now most people know that Courtney is a photographer. Many assume, apparently, that he takes the cover photo each month. Now, he certainly travels the county photographing talented people, creating beautiful things, but that cover shot, nope, he's not allowed. And he hasn't been since issue two. Because that, dear reader, is all yours. Every month we welcome submissions via our Facebook group and by email, and every month we are inundated with a pop-up seasonal art gallery of astonishing photography. It is joyous. By deadline day, the Monday before we publish, we will, on an average month, have received more than 700 submissions. Those are whittled down, obviously, to a short list of 30 or so, which we then request as high-resolution versions. And then comes my personal highlight of publication week. I settle down with Courtney and a mug of coffee, and we go through them all, comfortably bickering for a while over the merits of each individual picture as we slowly, very slowly, select the 12 which will make the reader's photography section unless we make an exception, there's 13 this month, plus the one coveted cover shot. The sheer talent of our local photographers never fails to astonish us, and I know they bring the same joy to every BB reader. What's even nicer is the support and appreciation on Facebook. Everybody's just there to enjoy them. Every submission is welcomed, no matter the subject, the style or the experience of the photographer. From phone shots to macro insects, astrophotography, drone stills, everything's welcome. We've never set a theme... But by accident, we seem to have fallen into the embarrassment of riches that is Dorset wildlife and landscapes. Honestly, that's fine by us. And if you sometimes miss out the photography section at the back of the magazine, maybe don't. Also, go and take a look at the glorious front starry cover from William Evans this month. Letters to the editor. And the first is from L. Simmons of Sherborne. I'm concerned about the impact of climate change on our community, especially seeing the effects of the most recent set of storms, with the damaging flooding to many local properties and businesses. Insurance companies already warn that due to climate-related risks, premiums will rise. In 2022, we had £473 million in storm payouts, and high temperatures led to £219 million in subsidence claims last summer. 
Insured losses from extreme weather have risen by 54% in a decade. Home insurance prices are at an all-time high, making it unaffordable for some. However, the situation is even more dire for those who cannot afford or access home insurance due to past flooding or a lack of willing insurers. This leaves homeowners and businesses vulnerable to shouldering the full cost of damage. And it also affects property values in high-risk areas, as potential buyers struggle to secure mortgages on uninsured properties. As AXA Insurance CEO Henri de Castri aptly said, a two-degree warmer world might be insurable, a four-degree warmer world certainly wouldn't be. It's crucial that we acknowledge the role of climate change in these challenges and take proactive measures to protect our homes and the environment. This letter from Tim Beer via Facebook uh, in reference to Jane Adams, just chuck it out the window in the BV of October 23, Gribbles and Yimps. Many moons ago, I worked on a tree nursery. One of our major contracts was supplying trees to new road projects, some of which were a species of apple that originated from an apple core in South Somerset. They were planted all over the country. The origins of slack my girdle are still unconfirmed. Chances are it was from Devon, but we will never know. Crab apples are direct descendants of the wild apples found in Kazakhstan. Size does not matter, but mostly they're very small, and they are all Malus sylvestris, as opposed to Malus domesticus. Domesticated apples, this did make me laugh, which are the descendants of sylvestris, but then grafted onto known rootstock, ranging from dwarf to standards. Apple trees grown from seed are gribbles, as opposed to those grown from grafts, which in Old English are known as yimps. Every seed from an apple is genetically different from its parent tree. That's the beauty of the apple, and why I have 18 new cultivars about to be grown on by Adam's apples. On Bad Boy Wolf, and this is referring to Andrew Livingstone's brutally honest tale of dog ownership in the October issue of the BV magazine. I've literally never enjoyed reading anything so much that I know to be 100% true in all my life. I laughed the whole way through. Well, thank you very much, Linda O'Neill, via Facebook. Anna Simmons, from Verwood, wrote in on the kindness of villagers. I was deeply touched, she says, by the heartwarming article about Gemma Hampton and her husband Andy's experience in Hinton St Mary. That was in the BV of October 23. In times of adversity, it is often the support and kindness of a close-knit community that shine the brightest. Gemma's account of the villagers' response to her husband's diagnosis of a brain tumour is a testament to the strength of community spirit. The villagers coming together to create a rota for the family's help is truly heartening. It's in stories like these that we find the true essence of community, something so often declared as lost. But it's a place where people rally around one another in times of need, offering their assistance and their support. What a reminder of the goodness that does exist right outside our doors. I wish Gemma, Andy and their children continued strength and resilience as they navigate this challenging journey ahead. On Steepton Bill Farm Shop, F. Winter of Shaftesbury writes... I enjoyed the recent feature on Steepton Bill Farm Shop and its owner, Steve Gould. It's great to read about another local business dedicated to fresh, sustainable produce. 
Steve's commitment to supporting local growers and providing seasonal items is impressive. It's essential to support local growers like Steve, who contribute to our community and offer authentic quality food. It's businesses like Steeptonville Farm Shop that make our local community special. On a side note, I want to compliment your Meet Your Local column, which has introduced me to several new local businesses and also had me exploring some previously unknown villages. Keep up the good work. Sally Bastian also wrote in through Facebook on the Steepton Bill Farm Shop. I found this amazing little gold mine of a shop in the summer and went back on Wednesday for fresh veg for a slow cooker stew. It was gorgeous. Peter Brown of Blandford writes as follows. I just wanted to drop a quick note to say thanks for featuring the hike in the space between Dorchester and Beminster in your recent issue. It was a lovely walk in an area I hadn't explored before and I thoroughly enjoyed it. What I appreciated most was the practicality of the article. Using a proper map, along with the option to download the route, is right up my alley. I like to have a physical map in hand while planning my walks. And even though I don't walk with an app, having the choice to download and transcribe the route was a bonus for a map enthusiast like me. I've bookmarked a few more walks you've featured, and I'm looking forward to trying them out when the weather improves. Thanks again for making local walks accessible and enjoyable. Your magazine has become my go-to for discovering new paths in our area. And the final letter came from Heather Baines in Gillingham. What about the youth resources? I'm writing, she says, to express my concern about the lack of opportunities and outlets available to young people in our rural area. Living in a rural setting undoubtedly has its charms, but it also presents challenges, especially for our younger residents. After school, there seems to be a significant void in terms of activities and places for them to gather, to socialise and engage in constructive pursuits. It's disheartening to hear about the prevalence of drug issues in some of our towns, and it's clear that many young people are lacking positive alternatives to keep them occupied and motivated. While uniformed groups are fantastic for those who are interested, they may not appeal to everyone. I'm curious to know if there are any initiatives or plans in place to address this issue. Are there community-driven efforts to create safe and engaging spaces for young people to come together, to learn and have fun? Is there a possibility of securing funding or support from local organisations or authorities to facilitate such programmes? Politics. From Hamas to Israel, seeking balance in Middle East relations. This is by Simon Hoare. It's usually sensible when writing articles for a local publication to remember the old advice that all politics is local and therefore to write on local issues. However, there are times when events overseas are of such magnitude that they command everyone's attention. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is one such example, and that horror continues without much media attention recently, and the situation in the Middle East continues to unravel and develop, absorbing virtually the whole bandwidth of our news and information sources. My inbox has been full of people expressing heartfelt views from all perspectives, so allow me to set a few initial baseline points which I believe to be fairly basic and uncontroversial. 1. The attack by Hamas was inhuman, cruel and a large-scale terrorist act. 2. 
Israel has the right to defend herself within the parameters of international law. Three, Hamas is not the Palestinian people, any more than the IRA was all Northern Ireland nationalists. Four, to criticise elements of some of the Israeli government's actions does not make one an anti-Semite, in the same way that condemning Hamas does not make one an Islamophobe. 5. A humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding before our eyes. 6. The most likely outcome is a deepening and widening of the mutual mistrust between countries that exist in the region, with the disastrous consequences that flow from that. 10 questions and 12 answers. I am, as constituents will know, not a black-and-white populist politician. To solve problems, one needs to sit on both sides of the table, to see the issue from the eyes of your opponent, and to try to find a solution that broadly works from both or all perspectives. Most politics and international relations are the product of accommodation of the other side. It is for this reason that I am both a supporter of the Conservative Friends of Israel and the Conservative Middle East Council. If, and sometimes it's a huge if, we are convinced that we want to see a peaceful Middle East where international boundaries and the rule of law are upheld, one cannot be 100% pro-one and 100% anti-the other. The best solution remains the two-state solution. The benefit of that solution is that it defangs Hamas. Talk of killing off, in a physical sense, or destroying Hamas is for the birds. Surely, if we learned any lesson from the fight with ISIS and the Taliban, it is that one cannot kill off an idea, dream, mindset, ideology. All it takes is a few people to keep that ember aglow, and it's always fanable at some future point. The creation of two mutually respecting states removes the need for Hamas, as the Palestinian homeland would be established and secured. However, that hope seems to be more distant than ever. Why? How would any Israeli leader take part in such talks following the outrage perpetrated by Hamas on innocent civilians? So what should happen? Ask 10 people and you'll get 12 answers. I started with some basic points of principle, so let me conclude with some. Number one, the normalisation of Israeli relations with the wider Middle East should continue. No one should let extreme fanatics knock evolving understanding and diplomatic relations off course. Secondly, the United Nations should strain every sinew to secure the unconditional release of the hostages. Number three, Hamas rockets and Israeli military action should then cease and the Gaza Strip become a UN-enforced protectorate or enclave en route to the creation of the two-state solution. Four, humanitarian aid must be allowed through. Five, as I said in the Commons, to maximise humanitarian relief, Egypt needs support and confidence that it will not become another permanent terror-infested refugee camp. Six, and this is the really hard part, the government of Israel needs to be the bigger man, articulating that two wrongs do not make a right and that an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is an out-of-date and irrelevant thought. Israel, as the democratic champion in the region, should always aspire to the higher calling that that status bestows. Sarah Dyke of the Lib Dems writes this month about advocating for fairness, same-sex couples and the IVF challenge. I recently spoke, she says, in a debate in Parliament on the provision of IVF for same-sex couples. 
In the UK, 90% of the integrated care boards, that's ICBs, require female sex couples to self-fund six cycles of intrauterine insemination, IUI, before they're eligible for IVF, leaving them to face extreme and often inhibitive costs. One cycle of IUI costs £3,000, and many couples will undergo 6 to 12 cycles of IUI, leaving them to pay between £19,600 and £25,000 before they're eligible for any NHS fertility services. Somerset ICB will fund nine cycles of IUI, but only one cycle of IVF to eligible women aged between 23 and 40, well below the NICE guideline of three full cycles. Only four of the country's 42 ICBs currently provide equal access to same-sex couples and do not require self-funding. Same-sex couples face a system that makes undergoing artificial insemination costly and arduous. I've been told by friends about the emotional impact that this has on them when they feel like they're in a fight with a system that discriminates against them and does not understand them. There should, of course, be equal access for same-sex couples across the nation's healthcare providers, and I hope to see this reflected in the next NICE guidelines in 2024. The government's women's health strategy has pledged to remove barriers faced by same-sex couples, but has set a 10-year development goal. Having spoken to people involved in the industry, they fear that this will be pushed back even further. This would mean that many more LGBTQ plus people who want to become parents will be left feeling disenfranchised under the current system as they're unable to afford the huge costs involved in fertility treatment. Every year that goes by has a real impact on the lives of LGBTQ plus people, more than 60% of whom either want children or already have them. It should be noted that women's fertility rate peaks in the mid-20s and drops rapidly after 35. Many women now choose to have children later in life, with the average age of new mothers in 2021 being close to 31. A delay implementing the women's health strategy will have a real and significant impact on the LGBTQ plus community's ability to have children as they continue to navigate the difficulties embedded in the current postcode lottery system. While this discriminatory system exists, the LGBTQ plus community are being put at a significant financial disadvantage at the very start of their journey into parenthood. The current system can also drive same-sex couples towards potentially unsafe methods, such as seeking sperm donors who may not be known to them. Not only can this place women in danger, but if the woman is not married or in a civil partnership, then the donor will be considered the legal parent of any children, giving him rights over and responsibilities for the child. We need a fair and equal IVF treatment programme that is equitable for all. Ken Huggins of the Green Party writes about can-kicking on climate change. The Prime Minister's announcement that he's decided to ease back on some of the government's climate change targets has been greeted with dismay by pretty much everyone who understands just how bad things already are. Speaking at a lectern somewhat misleadingly labelled long-term decisions for a brighter future, Richie Sunak's new approach to achieving net zero includes delaying the transition from gas boilers to heat pumps, as well as the phasing out of petrol and diesel vehicles. 
He also announced plans to scrap a range of other policies that were designed to help meet net zero targets, such as the obligation for homeowners and landlords to meet energy efficiency targets on home insulation. All this in spite of the government's own advisory body, the Climate Change Committee, having emphatically stated, again, that existing government policies are already totally insufficient to achieve net zero by 2050. And in spite of a year when the reality of climate change surely became undeniable, with the relentless breaking of weather records both here in the UK and across the world. Tragically, several people were killed in the recent second autumn storm to hit the UK, and farmland flooding will result in significant crop losses and lead to shortages of some foods, and naturally an increase in prices. As I write this, the Met Office are warning of yet another storm about to hit the UK, with very strong winds and a risk of further flooding because the heavy rain will fall on ground that's already saturated from the previous storms. We simply cannot afford to slow our efforts to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. Unless the government's change of course is rapidly reversed, there will be ever-worsening consequences. Kicking the can down the road may make you popular with some voters, but in the long run it will inevitably cost us all a lot more, in lost lives as well as money. There are, however, glimmers of hope in the growing number of young people becoming active in environmental protests, and in reports that UK citizens over the age of 70, a key cohort of Tory voters, are increasingly concerned about the environment. Last month in the BV magazine, West Dorset MP Chris Loder offered to answer an open postbag, and he answered all the letters that were sent. You can read his responses in the magazine, but I recently met with Chris in order to discuss some of the questions in a little more detail. Chris Loder is the MP for West Dorset. Chris, thank you for talking to us here on the BV magazine. Always a pleasure, Terry. May we firstly go through the questions which were submitted mm. by readers, and you've provided written answers, but perhaps we can just elaborate on a small number of those. Yes, of the first question, what's being done to highlight the need for more NHS dentists in West Dorset in particular? I and many like me are now faced with finding money I haven't got to go private. This is originated by Kevin Morse from Buckland Newton. I know NHS dentistry is a bit of a hobby horse of yours, isn't it? So yeah. where are we at on that? Yeah, so from a local perspective, um, I've um, made the case on a number of occasions in Parliament for West Dorset constituents about access to uh, to dentistry. In the um, in the edition, uh, um, Kevin and others will be able to read the response I um, I offered about it in in response to a specific question, but. Um, what I've done is basically to turn up the dial now in terms of making sure that the NHS actually deliver. The NHS budget for dentistry has been hugely underspent now for a little while. And I find that very, very difficult when I know there are so many people that have been struggling to get uh, dentistry um, dentistry help, especially if they've been in pain. The good thing is, though, um, actually earlier this morning I went to visit um, one of the uh, dental centres here in Sherborne next to the Yetman Hospital, and it is refreshing to hear from them that actually um, it is becoming easier to get dentists and for them to come and work here with them and to, um, you know, help ease some of that difficulty. Not everyone will ex will feel that at the moment. But for me, 
I think my role is properly holding the NHS and the Department for Health to account to find a better approach to these dental contracts that I understand why contracts were changed back in 2006. They were changed because I think there were some dentists at the time that um, may have benefited a little bit too much um, from it. Um, but I think the seesaw went back the other way. Is that at the root of it, that it's terms and conditions, which means that it's not attractive for a new dentist to train? Is, is that the basics of it? It all sort of happened over COVID. During the early part of COVID, getting access to a dentist just was impossible. I mean, a dentist sort of like vanished. There may have, may have been good reasons for that. But the reality is that ever since COVID, something happened where it wasn't really possible to access a dentist. They, are, they were either stayed closed for a longer period of time, and if you needed relatively urgent um, help, you generally had to do that through 111 or even go to a hospital in Dorchester. So for me, I think that the contracts have an important role to, to play in solving this. As it stands at the moment, I am not convinced that the NHS is prioritising this quickly enough, which is why... Um, I mean, I have now quarterly meetings with the NHS locally. Um, I've been to meet a number of dentists to understand from their point of view. One of the things that some of us politicians have fallen in the rut of is hearing from constituents their genuine frustrations about this, but then understanding from the government and the sort of the contractual people what the situation is without actually having a conversation with the dentists. So what I've been doing... Um, over the last few months is actually having the dialogue with the dentists in a way that we haven't had before um, and it's been really interesting some some agree some disagree some think that um, the solution is much easier than what is reported in the press for example so um, really I think now it's to keep the pressure on um, definitely the ICB the NHS in Dorset um, and to find a wider contractual solution and I think the minister has got to, you know, speed up a bit because the first time I brought this up in Parliament was actually last year. Okay, um, we'll, we'll move on. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah, got lots to get yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How important do you see the climate crisis, and what have you done already to try to get the Tories to address this? Sarah Ryan, Milbourne St Andrew. Mm, um, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of press coverage about net zero and mm. Rishi Sunak's pushing back of some of the the subcategories of that. Yeah, yeah. What, what's your view? So my view is that. Um, the government recognises the climate and ecological problems that we have, very much so. So much so, in actual fact, that the Environment Bill was brought forward into Parliament in 2020 and became law in 2021. Um, and let's not forget that, you know, it was actually Mrs May, when she was Prime Minister, that brought into law the need for the country to achieve net zero by 2050. So I, I know it's often a, a big political um, uh, football, but actually the reality is, is that the meaningful legislation has been brought in by the Conservative government. The question was specifically about what have I done? What have we looked to do to address some of these issues, especially in the light of some of the energy, um, uh, energy announcements uh, recently? The first thing to say is that the commitment to meet net zero by 2050 has not changed whatsoever. What has changed, however, was the rule or the regulation that said if you 
needed to replace your oil fire boiler after 2026, you would have to replace it with an air source or ground source heat pump. And they're quite expensive. Um, it was a huge concern of rural people in West Dorset that they genuinely believe that was unfair. And more importantly, they believe they didn't have the money to do it. And I had great sympathy and understanding um, with that. The government have basically deferred that point at which um, there's a necessity to change the boiler to an air source or ground source heat pump. I know some people feel that that in effect is having a negative approach to net zero. Um, I don't think that, and the reason I don't think it, is because the other part of that government announcement that was not so widely covered in the press was that the government set out um, basically a boiler replacement fund that meant that if you wanted to, or you were in the position to from 2026, to replace your boiler, whether it was needed or not, to air source or ground source um, uh, heat pumps. Um, there was actually a fund to help you do that, um, that would fund it up to the tune of 50% to a maximum value of £7,500. Now, that is actually better than what we had before. And I, I think it's regrettable, actually, that the media didn't really cover, the mainstream media didn't really cover that last bit, because I actually think you'll probably get more people look to take up that offer than you would have had before that announcement came to pass. In the meantime, we have high-profile protesters, Just Stop Oil being yep. possibly the, the one that's most in the news at the moment. Yep. What do you make to that kind of direct protest? I mean, on the one hand, they, they've got a right to do it and they've, they've uh, got a valid point and a lot of people would sympathise with the point. What about their, their method of going about it? I don't approve of the method and the law I think is clear and that doesn't allow them to disrupt in the way they are doing so. Um, I remember you know, over the last couple of years there were a lot of people who were quite critical when, when the government brought forward the Public Order Act or the Public Order Bill at that time and also the Police Crime Courts and Sentencing um, Bill. And they said that, oh, it's going to stop protests and it's going to prevent people from making... Um, you know, m making um, public statements or, you know, protesting or sharing their opinion publicly, which of course it does not, and of course it hasn't, and we can see that today. So that was all a load of nonsense. Um, but what we continue to see is an extreme form of protests um, that are not content with making their voice heard um, in a public place. They want to disrupt other people's lives. And I think we've seen a real change in public opinion in the last 12 months from people who actually have been broadly supportive to public protest and who are fine with it to people that have actually become very frustrated, especially where it has impacted their daily life. And when people come back to me and say, yeah, well, you know, we have the right of protest and that individual has the right of protest and so on. Um, well, yes, they do have the right of protest, but at what point do they have the right of protest when it impacts somebody else's life? You know, is it right that a Just Stop Oil protest can prevent an ambulance on blue lights getting to hospital? In my opinion, no, it's not. 
in my opinion, the Public Order Act sets out clearly that's not um, permissible. And I expect the police to act accordingly. And then I suspect we kind of, by default, go into territory um, that's been sort of more commonly reported over the last sort of week or so in terms of comments from the Home Secretary. And well, so I, I should say, as we sit here today, this is just before Remembrance mm. Weekend. In, indeed. Uh, by the time in, this indeed. goes out, yeah, it, it, yeah. we'll know exactly how that's mm. played out. But Suella Braverman oh. is currently under a lot of pressure mm. regarding an article she wrote mm. in The Times, uh, basically criticising the police. But the whole issue is around about whether yeah. uh, we should allow that type of mm. free expression alongside what is a very traditional mm. Remembrance Weekend, uh, quite a solemn occasion. That, that, that's right. The, the level of respect for other, other people and what other people want doesn't really feature very much in these extreme levels of protests now. I think it was completely outrageous for Greenpeace to um, get on top of the Prime Minister's personal home. I think it was disgraceful, and as a result, I won't have anything to do with them uh, anymore. Um, it's a shame, because I've always um, had what I thought was a constructive working relationship with with Greenpeace. Um, I think they've had an important role to play. But there, there is a limit, and I'm afraid um, this this increasing sort of extreme approach to protest has gone a little bit too far. And that's why I think um, some of those things I don't, I don't, um, I don't support. Okay, let's let's get back to the question. We're yeah, going to yeah, digress yeah, here yeah, a few yeah, times, yeah. aren't we? What's the point of investing money and time into a well thought out, locally agreed neighbourhood plan if it's going to be entirely ignored by planning officials? Now, uh, in your answer to Karen James of Dorchester, you said you weren't quite sure what she was referring to. I'd hazard guess that it's the development that's just been approved outside Blandford, where there's 490 houses against the wishes of the local local council uh, it's been approved yeah. by the planning authority yeah. uh, she's got a point hasn't she you know neighborhood mm. plan is supposed to be the local say in what development goes on yeah um, um unfortunately the area just outside blanford doesn't I, i'm not the mp for there so I'm, I'm sorry i don't know the ins and outs of it, it but but i understand the principle of the point um the neighborhood plan is very much that the purpose of it is very much to allow the parish to outline its wishes for it to be approved during a referendum of that parish and then for it to basically contribute to the local plan process in insofar as it should be respected in terms of its wishes. The local plan process itself does not have to fully, as far as I understand it, I'm not a planning pro, but does not, does not have to fully respect the whole of the neighbourhood plan. I think that's regrettable in some ways, but, you know, I think the reality is, though, here, is that for Dorset, we're in a drafting process of the local plan. And part of the reason I think we're seeing some of these planning applications and permissions and so on come forward is because the local plan isn't actually in place in the same way that we might expect it. So if you remember a couple of years ago, well, 2019, wasn't it? the different district councils across Dorset came together with the county council to form one Unitary. Dorset council area. Mm. I personally am um, a supporter of more modest, smaller development across um, across the county um, rather than la- a fewer but much larger developments. We've got one on the outskirts of Sherbourne, one on the outskirts of Dorchester as well. 
But I think the point of the question really, and I, I mean, I see Karen is actually from Dorchester, so she's probably referring to the developments mm. around Dorchester mm. or maybe, rather maybe. than Blandford. Yeah. But um, the point about it being if the locals have a say and it's ingrained in a legally recognised document such as the neighbourhood plan, it then does make it look slightly um, sidelined if the local authority don't take it into yeah. account when making decisions. It's one of the reasons I asked Karen to get in touch with me about this, because she doesn't say which parish she's talking about. Um, there are so many different variables, you see. Um, but the principle. Yeah, but the reason I say there's so many different variables is because the neighbourhood plan can say different things or have different requirements or different needs. The, f- the fact is that the Dorset Council, I think, should consider them, take them into account, but doesn't necessarily have to. Um, so... It's not straightforward. I'm, I'm not a planning professional, and typically it's a matter which the council or the local councillors should be held to account on. But um, I tend not to personally get involved with individual planning applications unless we're talking about larger, much larger developments. You know, the north of Dorchester development would be a good example of that. I can see why people get quite animated about it. I mean, I, I live in Bradford Abbas, where there is a local plan being drawn up at the moment, and, you know, a neighbourhood plan, one would say, well, why go to all the trouble of doing that? You know, it's going to take two or three years to do if actually... In some cases, you know, a bit longer than that. Actually. Yes, the council and, comes and along I, and says, well, we're not going to abide by it. Yeah, and I, I you know, my opinion is that um, you have to be clear about... When, when the parish is bringing the neighbourhood plan together, they have to be clear about what they want to achieve from doing that. And sometimes there's a question about, is it... You know, is it good value for money on the time front um, in terms of all the action that goes into it and all the all the time that goes into it? Um, yeah, good question. I think neighbourhood plans have generally been a good thing, but given the amount of time they take, um, how good are they? If you ask, if you ask people in Cernabas, I think they would probably speak very highly of it. There are a few other parishes that I probably did not to name who don't have such a positive view of it. So I, I okay. don't think I can give a straightforward no, one, okay. one size right. fits all. Well, we've, um, we've sort of aired that uh, grievance, yeah, certainly. Yeah, so the next question was, how, after so many years in government, can the Tories account for the fact that the approximately 3.8 million people experienced destitution in 2022, more than double that in 2017, and nearly triple the number of children? Specifically, what, what's being done regarding underestimated rural poverty. That's from Mary Coles. What I've found from the government is that actually it has done such an enormous amount during this parliament to help people uh, in need. More than we would probably have ever expected ever before. That's partly due to COVID, but actually even following on from COVID, you know, the, the level of cost of living support that the government has directly helped people with is just unprecedented. So I, I have to push back a little bit with things like this, where um, there is often a, a broad brush statement basically suggesting that the Conservative government has done nothing to help people who are um, poorer or in poverty, because I don't accept that for one moment. I think, though, for us in Dorset, the thing that we can do to really help people much more um, 
is actually how the council tax mechanism works. And I have long called for, probably the last two and a half years now, long called for a revision to the process of which um, is allocated, in effect, the revenue or the council tax support grants from government. I don't want preference for Dorset, but I do want fairness. And we are pretty low down that list. We're pretty, we? yeah. I mean, until until this current year, we had zero on that front, um, and you know, we, we did a little bit better this year, and I was able to make some success with my interventions. But the the reality is, I'm afraid that we're still quite low. And the single biggest thing that we can do to help people out of poverty is to reduce the tax burden. And I'm talking specifically here, not just about you know the income tax and the national insurance and so on, but I'm talking very much about the council tax and how we should be able to find ways to reduce that tax burden on local people in Dorset. There are several reasons, it's not straightforward, but the, the primary reason is that the social care cost here in Dorset for children and adults is significant. Give or take a percent or two, it's three quarters of the overall council tax cost. That is enormous. And part of the reason of that, of course, is because the population on average is much older. A third of the population in West Dorset is over 65 and therefore has a much higher need for support in in older age. Why isn't that recognised in central government? Well, that's what I'm really calling for, because I I think it's unfair that you have some council areas, and I use Wandsworth as a benchmark, so Wandsworth has, I think, if if I recall correctly, circa 10% of its population over 65, has the lowest council tax in the country, but receives a £24 million, or did last year, revenue support grant. Yet here, we have much higher council tax. We have um, a third of the population over 65, and we, you know, we get virtually zero uh, of that grant. So it doesn't doesn't quite make up so my biggest mission as the MP for West Dorset is to continue to make that case at every opportunity to say actually we need to be treated more fairly when it comes to this mechanism and you know we've had some progress but I would freely admit nowhere near enough progress. If, if I may say, and I know nothing about uh, uh, central government yeah, funding yeah, yeah. of local authorities, it does seem a bit random that, um, as you as you say, you can draw comparisons with other councils. Why is there not some formula for this, or, or is there a formula that for some reason well, is falling is down? Point. There is a formula in place, but the formula is outdated. The formula in days, in my younger years, I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact date, but it, it'll be more than... Um, more than 15, 16 years old. You know, back then, 16 years ago, I would have been 25. The demographic, the balance of age across the population was very different then. The needs on social care, you know, we hardly ever talked about that in public discourse at that point. So I think there's a real need to drive fairness and it's probably the biggest, most important mission that I have as the representative MP of West Dorset. Will Mr Loden make a public acknowledgement, preferably by way of an apology, for his fawning endorsement of Liz Truss? OK, that's a bit of a loaded question, clearly. <laughs> but I mean, there is a serious point behind it yeah, that um, you did endorse Liz and yep. it didn't work out terribly well for her. Yep. What's your retrospective yep. view on that? So I look back 
on that period where we had to choose, in effect, the right candidate to stand as uh, Prime Minister. And we should just put into context that West Dorset suffered hugely during COVID. We lost an enormous amount of our small and micro-sized businesses, of which 97% make up the economy here. We lost getting on a fifth of our businesses during that period. And for us to recover properly, growth was really important, it still is really important, and that's why we often hear today about the need to grow and grow faster. Um, and in my mind, when I spoke to all of the different candidates, as I did, and asked them about the priorities for West Dorset, and those priorities, just so we're clear, as we talked about revenue support grant just now, will rural Britain, including West Dorset, be recognised in the what's called the Green Book, which is the Treasury Mechanisms for Allocation of Funds, in a way that's not done before? Liz was the only person that answered yes. When I asked specifically about the plans for growth for, for rural Dorset and rural Britain, the compelling strongest answer I got was from Liz. It was. And so uh, when you go through that process, you have to, I had to make the decision, who do I think is the best person to advocate the policies that will best support the people of the constituency of which you're elected to represent? And that's why in um, was it July last year, I made that decision and I said, yes, I think that's, um, that's right. And I still think some of those policies are right. And we will see in the autumn statement that's coming up in a week or two whether actually, after all the turbulence that we've seen in the last sort of year or two, whether or not we're coming back to thinking, oh, actually, maybe they were right, but just at the wrong time. Would she have made a, a, a good longer-term leader of the party? I mean, she did seem to be mm. lacking... A, <coughs> rabbit in, in the headlights came to mind a few yeah. times. Liz Truss was an exceptional foreign secretary, I think. She was an exceptional Secretary of State for International Trade. She got her head down, she did the job, she delivered. You know, a lot of benefits we see as a result of that today. You know, she was a Foreign Secretary when when everything happened about Ukraine and she basically led that international dialogue. I just think it's such a shame that when she had the opportunity, the implementation and the operation just really didn't work that was a shame but we are where we are now and um you know we moved on (laughs) i went on to ask chris to comment on a few other current local issues and for his views on the government's likely fortunes in the forthcoming general election you can hear his responses including his thoughts on his own re-election prospects in episode two of the podcast karen geary Regular BV columnist is the magazine's excellent nutritionist, and her articles are always full of good advice. Last month, she had recommendations about how to eat a healthy diet on a tight budget. And as I said to her, tight budgets do face so many of us these days. Yes, yes, that's right. It, I mean, it, it's, it's, and I noticed this month my shopping bill was the same, but that's the first time it's been the same for a long time. Um, so it's been steadily increasing and I've been, like a lot of people, trying to find substitutions or ways to eat differently and um, and less expensively. I've become very, I don't know about you, but I've become very aware of waste. 
Um, I did see a staggering statistic in the Telegraph last week about how much food we managed to um, just not use in the UK. Uh, it's it's a phenomenal amount, absolutely phenomenal amount. So it, I it I, is, I, isn't it, Karen? And I don't know if you saw the statistics about pumpkins. <laughs> oh, no, don't get me started. <laughs> no, I think I think perhaps we'll, we ought to gloss over that one because that is the, that is an appalling food waste, isn't it? Everybody thinks pumpkins are really boring, but but not if you put the right things with no, them, are they? No, I mean they're great in soups. Um, you know, you just wrote, uh, the pumpkins, those big pumpkins that we use for Halloween don't taste great, um, but you know, roasted and put into soups or used as thickeners, they're absolutely fine. But I've become um, very conscious about veg leftover waste so um you know the end of the if you don't serve everything there's always the a cabbage leftover or a few potatoes left over you just mix them together with some egg and turn them into bubble and squeak you know the old-fashioned way um and if people have got air fryers and things like that you know they're absolutely perfectly fine and kids really like them so you know, I'm very conscious about food waste and what can be reused and also the stuff that's lurking in the bottom of the um, veg drawer at the end of the week. You know, what is there? What can be done? <laughs> that that hasn't gone mouldy, you mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's always something. I mean, I, I'm quite careful about making sure my veg lasts for as long as possible. I do try and make sure that nothing nothing is wasted. And I think that's the place to start, really, rather than keep buying and then on the buying stuff, uh, at home, we make a lot of use of um, packets of beans and lentils. Again, you know, you can make whole meals out of them uh, or you can just add them to soups and stews because they fill it out. So, you, you know, you don't need to put as much meat in a, a stew if, you, if you're putting beans and lentils in it as well. So it really sort of adds bulk. And by the way, I'm a meat eater. I'm not a vegan, but you know, we, we 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 do eat a lot of. Um, you're, you're an processes. omnivore, are you, Karen? You... Uh, yes, <laughs> I I used to be a vegan many years ago, um, but my hair started to fall out. So um, vegan is not something that suits my body. But many people do very well with it. But you uh, you sort of mentioned put put things in a in a soup and of course winter's a great time for soups isn't it and that's where a lot of those old leftover veggies can go isn't it yes i mean if you've got i mean if you're working at home it's easier because you can just make a batch of soup for the week and you know dip into it at lunchtime um i think that's quite nice um not everybody can do that um but you know what's wrong with taking a flask to work it's it's much better than trying to pick something up in the town at lunchtime of course, Karen, the dilemma for a lot of people incre- increasingly is, you know, with life becoming more expensive um, and, and people having to, uh, you know, in, in a family, both both parents having to go out and work. It convenience food is, uh, you know, if you come home from work at the end of a long day, you don't really want to be spending a couple of hours in the kitchen um, cooking the meal. So convenience foods really come into their own there, don't they? But uh, But of course, they're... With that, his cost, isn't there? Yeah, that's, well, not always, because I think, you know, you can pick up a pizza for a pound. <laughs> so it's really quite tempting. Um, and I can understand why you get home and take a pizza out of the freezer and, and, and put it in the oven. Cause it's quick. But, you know, actually, if you've got chops or um, some frozen fish, you can cook that just as quickly with a bit of frozen veg as well. So you don't need to be spending... I think Jamie Oliver's very good at this. 
you don't need to be spending a couple of hours in the kitchen chopping and peeling if you give it a little bit of thought so you know planning comes into its own if you think quite carefully about each meal um, at the beginning of the week before you go shopping plan your meals out easier said than done but you know it takes 20 minutes to write the meal plan for the week you turn that into a shopping list um, that saves you from getting distracted in the supermarket or whether you buy online if you stick to it a lot of my clients like to do a lot of their prep on a Sunday, on a Sunday afternoon, so they've got most of it ready to go, even if it's chopping vegetables and putting them in bags and things like that ready for when they get home. So it, it takes a bit of thought. I, I think where we waste the most is when we get home from work and we're staring in the fridge not knowing what to do, expecting something to creatively happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Something to leap out of the fridge at you already made, and all you yeah, need to I'm, do is heat it up. My, hus my husband's an expert at that. He also we've got, we've got anything to eat, and he's staring in the fridge, and there's actually loads. But I think when you, ho when you get home and you're tired, you, you, you don't want to think about it. You want to know what you're going to do. Besides which, your brain isn't probably <laughs> quite as sharp as it was in the morning. It's just it's just brain space where you know if you plan. I own I I'm I re, when when food started to go up, I managed to take twenty percent off my shopping bill because I said I thought I really need to go back to planning food. So yes, just stop buying the discretionary stuff. Twenty percent's a lot. That is a lot, yeah. One of the recommendations that you make uh, is that we should shop local. Of course, environmentally, that's very good too, isn't it? But but it often seems to be more expensive, you know, if you go to your local farm shop um, to buy your, your veg or your fruit or your cheese. And goodness, isn't cheese expensive these days? Mm, mm. Uh, well, I think it depends. I, I mean, I buy my fish locally and, um, you know, there's always plenty of options there for, and fish is ludicrously expensive at the moment that's a another hobby horse of mine I don't know why it's so expensive in the UK but you know you can get cuts of fish like hake for example which is excellent and it's quite good value so I think it's about being smart I'm not sure all the farm shops are expensive I think it depends on which farm shops you go to and what it is they're selling but um, I, I would always try to buy locally if I can you know I think the markup at the supermarket for you know a good quality piece of meat for example is 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 quite astonishing really I I, I bought a, an organic chicken a couple of weeks ago in the supermarket and it was 20 pounds you can get that cheaper in a in a farm shop or in, or in your local butcher and, and it's good, good butcher. to keep the local butchers going Karen yeah. I'm told that frozen goods have, um, you know, frozen veg and fruit, have more nutrients and vitamins in them than fresh. Is that the case? Well, so they say. Um, I'm a big fan of frozen. Um, I mean, they do say that they're picked and frozen on the same day. That's what the marketing speak says. I have to believe that they contain far more nutrients than something that's been sitting in the bottom of the fridge for a week. And, and who knows where it's been stored before and it's gone a bit limp and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, we, we use frozen a lot, and particularly frozen berries. Uh, I, I, think fro I think berries are expensive, but frozen berries aren't. 
and you know you can get a good bag of them in Iceland for a reasonable price and you know you can put them in desserts you can put them in smoothies you know they you know they don't have to be nice and firm um if you're cooking with them for example you know they can be a bit squashed that's absolutely fine so i mean obviously peas is another thing broad beans even onions um although they're quite cheap fresh it's just convenient for adding into stews and things like that so yeah i'm i'm a big big fan of frozen and of course there's less preparation involved isn't there if you mm. get frozen veg you just mm. open the bag and, and pop you it go. in the boiling water and, and and all this karen leads us nicely into um you know keeping ourselves healthy in the um health challenging winter months uh, mm. and keeping that second brain the, the gut in good order mm. yes well i you know i Jenny, I had a cold this weekend. I haven't had a cold for four years. I also haven't had COVID. Don't ask me why, um, but I've been probably one of the lucky ones. Um, so it's probably as well that we're doing this today and not yesterday because I would have sounded quite differently. But I, I managed to get rid of it in a day and a half. And I really believe that the gut had a lot to play with that and, and, and taking, taking care of it. I mean, plants... Is obviously the big one. Um, you know, the gut likes diversity, like lots of varying types of food, and, and you see lots of things on the internet, and you read lots of things about making sure that you eat a wide diversity of plants. And I include herbs and spices in that as well, but also um, pre and probiotics. So um, prebiotics are a lot of the fibrous things like bananas, apples, onions, leeks, artichokes. That's the food source from which gut bugs thrive. And then there's probiotics. And which... gut bu- uh, by gut bugs, of course, you were talking about the good ones. The good ones, yeah. They, they thrive on stuff like that. So, you know, there, there's a, there, there is something to the old wives' tale, an, old wi- um, an apple a day, I, I would say, because apple's got an amazing source of... Um, nutrients in it from which gut bugs thrive but then there's the probiotics they're the live bugs they're the things in in plain yogurt and kefir and um, sauerkraut and kimchi and miso and kombucha and you need a blend of both pre and probiotics to have a healthy gut I mean, the, the one with probably the most value prebiotic is kefir um, it's got more in it than plain yogurt but plain yogurt is absolutely fine we use a lot of, well, say we, I use a lot of kimchi at home. Um, I eat it with eggs. My husband cannot stand the smell of it. So <laughs> well, if, if you do, do it the true uh, Korean way, of course, you've got fish paste in there as well. And that does make it distinctively stinky. So, yeah, I, I'm banned from the kitchen when I... when when. When the kimchi gets up, she's normally at breakfast in the mornings with my eggs. You're not banished to the garden shed then to eat not, it, are you? Not quite. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Um, some people hate it for that reason, but I, you know, I I eat it probably most days. So you know, I have to believe that that helps. So you know, it again. All of those things I've mentioned are not expensive, and they're mostly plants. So you don't have to be taking fancy supplements. You, although I did, I have to say, to get rid of my cold. But you know, you don't you don't have to be eating fancy superfoods to be able to keep 
things healthy. I mean, even another thing that's really I, I like to do is boil up the bones from whatever we eat on a Sunday lunch and make bone broth. It's a fantastic source of protein and um, it's really good um, gut strengthening food. So again, bone broth costs nothing. You're just getting more out of using your your, your, your Sunday roast, as it were. Or you can get some bones from the butcher, can't you? Or you can get bones from the butcher. <laughs> one, one of the other important uh, uh, aspects of keeping yourself and your immune system in good good order in the winter is, is getting enough sleep, isn't it? A problem yes. that would be neatly solved if we could all hibernate. <laughs> yes. I mean, I put sleep in front of nutrition, Jenny, if I'm honest. Um, I, people ask me, you know, nutrition doesn't stand on its own. I go sleep first, exercise second, and nutrition third. That would be my my order of play. Um, I've got loads of sleep tips on my website, and um, I've written a few articles on sleep before for the BB. I, I I used to be a poor sleeper. I trained myself to sleep well, and I sleep well, um, very very well. And and it can be done if you. You start to establish your routine and you don't eat too late, although some people do need a snack sometimes to help them. Um, you know, you, you're not overdoing the alcohol late. You know, you're, you're eating well. You, you can get good quality sleep if you really start to think about your routine. But establishing the routine is the first step. And, and trying to avoid stress because then you'll sleep better. Yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and 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 on the on on that f- front, Karen, I guess that also try, trying and it's a bit hard work these days, is it not? Try to stay cheerful should help your physical health as well as as well as your mental health, shouldn't it? Yes, I think so. You know, managing there's lots of advice around about managing stress. Staying cheerful isn't easy right now. We've all got different concerns and stresses and pressures. I've, I've got a new feature on um, one of my wearables. I've got a, a wearable called an Aura Ring. And it shows how much stress you're under at any one time, which I have to tell you is the most stressful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I would have thought so, yes. Looking at it and saying, oh, no, I am really stressed would make you even more stressed. <laughs> so, you know, the best thing to do is actually not to look at that. Um, and go and do something else. I, I, I think my favourite thing is breathing exercises. Even if you're feeling miserable and down and low, just some deep breathing. You don't have to go and do a yoga class. But, you know, the, the science around breathing is quite profound in terms of improving our stress levels, our well-being, our overall health. Getting out in the morning when the sun's out, first thing in the morning, getting some sunshine into our face. Even when it's cloudy, those sorts of things can help just take sort of the, the, the stress levels down. You know, I, I, I do think, you know, as a society, we've also become less tolerant about things, as we know. And I think that gets people down. You know, I don't buy into some of these things about thinking only about yourself and trusting nobody and being suspicious of everyone. No, I, I guess I believe in some of the old old-fashioned values where, you know, it's about what we can do to support other people and help each other because I do think that that helps in terms of, our, you know, for how you feel about each other and, and your own well-being. If you've done something with consideration and respect, then you feel better about yourself and you feel less stressed. One of the reasons why I went into nutrition 
was the great satisfaction I get when I see a client become well again. That is massively uplifting. So I think we have to find things we enjoy doing that makes us feel uplifted. And generally, it's about not being selfish. Karen, Karen Geary, thank you so much for talking to us today. You're welcome. Lovely to talk to you, Jenny. Thank you. And that's it from us in a slightly longer than normal edition of the BV Magazine podcast. Join us soon for episode two. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.